This is Outside the Vines, a podcast that fuses three big names from the world of sports, their love of wine, and their thirst for sports. For the video version of this podcast, check out our YouTube channel. There you get to enjoy the visual side of our podcast with next-level infographics, and you get to witness the reactions from our guests and hosts while they taste the wines. All right, let's get to it. Here are your hosts for Outside the Vines, Ted Robinson, Glenn Parker, and Ashley Adamson. Well, everybody, look, it's July. It's the middle of summer, so we're going to talk hockey. Of course we are. Dave Barr is our guest, and uh, Dave had a long career, 13 years in the National Hockey League, including some years we'll get a chance to brush up playing with some of the greats uh, on the Detroit Red Wings' long-term powerhouse team. He ended up becoming a coach in the International Hockey League with the Houston Arrows, where he had the misfortune of colliding (laughs) with our own Adam Gordon. Somehow Dave survived that and got his traction going, became an assistant coach in the NHL, most recently with the San Jose Sharks, and now just finished uh, as the head coach of the under-18 World Junior Team that won a gold medal. Dave is a resident of San Jose, and yes, loves wine. We'll talk wine as well, but... uh, it's hockey. I, I first have to say, Dave, Ashley, your favorite hockey player of all time growing up was. You're asking me, Ted? Yeah. Your favorite I mean, Wayne player. Gretzky was like the the god. I mean, I obviously Wayne was the, you know, the player that I felt like everyone. But I was a Colorado Avalanche fan. And so, you know, I grew up in Denver. And so I feel like there were so many different. But Joe Sackick to me was like, that Joe was who Sackick. I loved. So, yeah. And now yeah. I'll take Dave so Barr all- also very high up there on my list. <laughs> Just for the record. Well, the comes up in the same conversation a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those of us old, those of us old, guy, old guys, when you say Joe Sackick, I think Quebec Nordiques, but that's another story. All right. So, Glenn Parker, with all your great history in Buffalo, your favorite hockey player was well, is believe it or not, you just brought up the Nordiques. Guy Lafleur was pretty amazing. But I'll go, I'll go back. I grew up as Kings fan. So I was a Rogi Vachon and Marcel Dion guy. Those were my guys. And then uh, going to the, the Sabres, I got to be great friends with so many of them while I played there. They were my friends while I played football. I, I had some friends in football, but those were my guys. So uh, Rob Ray, Brad May, Ken Sutton, those were guys I was close with. And, and I got to really hang out with the team a lot. I was a season ticket holder for a lot of years. And uh, so really Rob Ray and Ken so, Sutton were probably my closest, yeah. Good. All right, Dave, who'd you grow up? Who was your favorite player growing up? Uh, growing up in Canada, we saw Toronto on TV twice a week, so I was a Maple Leaf fan. Uh, my favorite player was most likely Daryl Settler, who was, uh, played for the Leafs for maybe 13, 14 years. Um, so that was it. I was a Leaf fan. And then as soon as you signed your first pro, pro contract, that was ended. <laughs> Whoever I played for, then that's obviously my favorite team. Are, are the Leafs in Canada related at all to the way the Red Sox and Cubs were in America for about a century each before they finally broke those curses? Do the Leafs have that kind of curse around them to the Canadian hockey fan? Uh, well, Toronto hockey fan, they get absolutely abused by everybody else in Canada uh, just because Toronto's the kind of the center of the world. All Torontonians think they're you know, that, this is the center of the world, and then it just spreads out from here. So they get abused. Um, 
you know, by uh, by other by other fans for sure. But it's been a while. It's been ni- 1967 was the last year they won. That, that's un- it's unreal. All right, and tell me, lastly, Slapshot. Where does that rank on your all time movie <laughs> list? <laughs> it's amazing when you watch old movies. You know, like oh god, that was so good that movie, and then you rewatch it 20 years later. Goes oh god, it wasn't that good. Yeah. So Slapshot's. Uh, I mean, it's one of those ones you watch every second or th- I watch every second or third year and just kind of relax and laugh because of the antics and you know it was a little bit you know different, but there was a lot of light, a lot of fighting and ho- fighting and hockey. Uh, back then, and uh, so they sure, you know, sure showed that in the movie. But it was a great movie, some classic scenes. Dave, I'm curious. I, I feel like, you know, you mentioned the, the fighting in hockey, and I think hockey, no offense to all the football players that I love, including the esteemed Glenn Parker, who's on our podcast, but I would say that, like, hockey is the toughest sport. In, in my opinion. And I think with that, there's always kind of like the beer drinking, tough guys, knock your teeth out. Now it feels like there's a lot of former and current and like wine has become a big part of the hockey culture from what at least I can tell from the outside. Is that true from your experience being being up close or did you see it kind of change throughout your career? I, I And I don't know if this has got anything to do with it, but, you know, how much is a beer when we were playing? It was 325 glass of wine was six bucks now guys are making eight ten million dollars a year the lowest you can get paid is about seven hundred fifty thousand dollars so i i think a little bit of it's where you're eating now you know you're going out to a nice restaurant you're having a bottle of bottle of something to go with your steak or whatever you're having your or your you know so i think that's a little bit of it is how much money the players are making now plus they are getting a little bit more worldly than I think they were when 95% of the uh, the players in the uh, National Hockey League were from Canada, and half of those guys were from the middle of nowhere. So they, you know, not really super worldly. It, interesting, because some of the guys I played with, we kind of they got in the wine the same time I did, from the and so we kind of started doing the wine thing. But it was so rare for us because, as you said, none of us made a lot of money. So it was kind of like, well. You know, once a month we'd go to a nice dinner, but that yeah, wouldn't be your go-to. Um, but on another note, even though I'm a football guy, Slapshot's still the best sports movie ever made. I mean, <laughs> I, I have to watch it every year. So <laughs> North Dallas 40, the best football movie, but Slapshot, the best sports movie, hands down. I still remember when it came out. I still remember going and seeing it. It just, I howl when I watch it to this day. <laughs> Yeah, it is good. You know, it would be kind of fun, funny for uh, for all non-hockey people who are going to watch this podcast, for them to give it a shot and see what they thought. It would be kind of interesting to see how they would react to the some of the shenanigans and antics. And there's probably a lot of stuff that really happened that they're not gonna, the, a lot of fans, maybe everybody thinks, like, oh, my God, this would never happen. <laughs> but it does and did. <laughs> I bet you've got some good. So, I bet uh, you've got some good stories from from your playing and coaching career. Uh, I mean, are, are there any that are like? And this isn't necessarily a family friendly podcast. We can edit it, so you know, feel free to add some color, and we can. I'll tell you one yeah. story. We were in, the, and this is the truth. We're in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. So basically, in from the U.S., if you don't know where that is, it's probably straight north of. North Dakota or Montana or so, 
it's cold during the wintertime. So we had something happen last game against Saskatoon. So we wanted to get one guy on their team. So in warm-ups, so warm-ups before the game, you go on the ice, skate around on your half of the ice, you get warmed up for the game. Soon as we got on the ice, we went after one guy. He ran out the gate, and we had four or five guys running in the concourse with their skates on, three people. He ran out into the parking lot. And so I didn't go with him. I was a hair smarter than that, um, probably because I just didn't see that happen. But so that happened. So we ended up having a huge fight on the ice. Everybody who was on the ice fought. Everybody. So 15 guys versus 15 guys all fighting. And then you have nobody to officiate the fights. So anyway, so we get back to the dressing room. They finally cleared everything up. Back. We get back to the dressing room. And we're going, where are these three or four guys? Well, they were in the, you know, they were still out in the parking lot. They eventually caught them. They, they beat them up a little bit, but they didn't really. I think they realized how stupid it was becoming. So they get back and, and they're, they couldn't play in the game because their skates were so screwed up. They couldn't fix the blades. They couldn't fix their blades, so they couldn't play in the game. But the game went on as usual. I don't think there's any stopping the game or anything. So that's... <laughs> And that was a, that's junior hockey in Western Canada. That would have been 1980, somewhere in there. Wow, crazy! <laughs> the best the best stories, and 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 I'll, I'll tell one here, share one quick, and then then we'll pivot a little bit to the to the big time hockey. So, uh, Dave, tell me if this rings true. So, I was in the minor leagues for two years. The second year, I was in Cincinnati, and we played a game on a night in December, and we had a player go out and get in a fight within the first minute goes in the box serves his five comes out with the other player goes right at that guy goes at it again <laughs> five four comes out after that five has to go off the ice they put him back out for a shift he takes another guy third fight in the first period so he goes to the penalty box and in the the arena in cincinnati the box has had a, a guy in between them that was i don't know what he was there for he's an on-ice official of something so he looks at our guy and he goes what's wrong with you tonight he goes oh we're folding after the game so i thought he'd put a show on for the fans <laughs> so so the on-ice official calls up to the press box hey he says we're folding after the game <laughs> and i'm yet i'm the everything so i'm on the air calling the game and of course it was true but I was sworn to secrecy and I wasn't allowed to say oh, so until the end of the game. So now I've got them all banging on the glass during the game. That player, you lo you will know him, Dave, because he later became one of the most veteran. He was he was a complete fighter. He became one of the most veteran officials in the league, Paul Stewart. Oh, my God. Stewie. Wow. So he's the guy that says, yeah, I'm just putting a show on for the fans. He got, oh. he totally slap shot it out the first period oh, of this game. Like, like, like he was a handsome brother. It was crazy. Amazing. All right. There's a million hey, tell stories me. like that. I, and that's why. All right. Tell us about the, the juniors. You, you coached this under-18 juniors uh, championship. Uh, and they and you wind up winning the gold medal for it. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, it, uh, it was great. It happens every year. I mean, COVID's kind of skewed a few things up, but it happens every year uh, around April, May. So it's the best players in the world um, playing for the best country hockey countries in the world. So Czech Republic, Finland, Sweden, Russia. You can you know Canada, U.S. U.S. has always got a very good team. 
And so I got a phone call from a guy that I, I, I knew from, I've, I've known for quite a while. I said, do you want to coach? And I wasn't working at the time. So I said, sure. I didn't know if it was head, assistant. I, did, I didn't care. You know, I'm coaching the best uh, players in Canada. And so he phoned me back four hours later and said, I want you to be head coach. I said, sure, I'd love to. Uh, so there was a lot of, uh, uh, lot of stuff we have to do because of COVID. Uh, uh, my God, my brain's gone dead. What happens when you go quarantine? We had to quarantine in our own house for five days, travel day to Dallas, quarantine in the hotel for four days. So I did not step out of the hotel for four days, my hotel room. There'd be a knock at the door at eight o'clock, open the door, there'd be a bag there, there's your breakfast, you close the door, that was it until till lunch, until wow. dinner. So we did everything by, you know, through Zoom calls or through through, through video or on, online. And it was absolutely amazing. I had, um, for all the, if there are any hockey fans out here, I'm sure there are, um, we're going to have, I, I probably have five or six guys on the team that are going to get drafted on this Friday coming up, or I should say the date, I guess, July 23rd. Yeah. Uh, probably have five, six guys drafted in the first round. And then two of the players I had will probably be first overall picks. So the first pick in the NHL draft in 22 and also in 23, I had a 15 year old on my team. So, anyways, we won the gold. It was, uh, it was an amazing experience. So I had a, I have a friend who is a coach for Tampa Bay. So I congratulated him after you know they won the Stanley Cup this year. I congratulations. His name is Rob Zettler, wonderful guy. Congratulations, Stanley Cup champ. Not the same as a world champion, but still, it's really an amazing achievement. Amazing achievement. So I kind of give it a bit of a hard time. So it was a, it was it was. Great, great experience for me. One of those things that you remember forever, you know, type of thing. You win a world championship. We beat Russia in the finals. Um, you know, very, very good team. Uh, so it was, it was really neat. You know, I've got a question for you. Um, about you talk about the juniors. You, you mentioned your story in Saskatoon. You talk about coaching the juniors. One of the things I've always said, and people ask, why, were I, why was I friends with hockey players? Because I always thought they were the most down-to-earth guys. Um, See, I didn't grow up in football. I, I started football very late in life when I was 20. And I think the thing that makes hockey players is juniors. I think leaving their home and going and staying with other families and having to be a stranger in someone's house and be polite. And I just think that's an incredible experience that that really makes these guys because they're not built up to be the greatest kids in the world. And and I, I don't know if you agree or disagree, but and granted, Canadians are generally pretty good people overall anyways. But, you know, there's a lot of a lot of hockey players from all over the world. They all seem to be the same ilk, but really good people. Yeah, I mean, we get we get compliments, you know, as a coach. You walk by the front desk on the way out and, how you doing? Hey, just wanted to tell you, your team was fantastic. No problems. The most polite kids. We get that all the time. It's so nice, you know, to know that you're – you're, you're, you're involved with people who are polite and, you know, they care and they're neat and they, you know, they're courteous. I mean, that's great. And we hear that all the time about hockey players. I don't want that ever to change. I really don't. I, I want us to be, it doesn't matter where you're from, U.S., Russia, Canada, that we all embody that, that 
that spirit of being a good person. And I, I think we do. We're, we're, we're kind of humble. I think for the most part, we're really not, we're not a lot of, a lot of this, not a lot of glam with, with us. Um, but yeah, that is, that is something, uh, playing junior hockey. I still, I'm 60 years old. I still talk to the billets that I had 42 years ago. I talk to them once a month. <laughs> They're like family to me. I remember leaving them. And it was like, Oh my God, I don't know if I want to leave. And I'm going from them to my real family. And it was, you know, it was kind of a weird thing, but, uh, uh, but it really, it really does bring out, it forces you to be more social, to be adhere to somebody else's rules, I guess. Uh, so there's a lot of positives in, in, in turning a, you know, a, a young man into a, a, a good, good young man. Glenn, I'm glad you brought that point up because we've always had, you know, and, and I started off in, in local news and in sports in, um, you know, upstate New York. I was in Albany and, and Syracuse before I moved to Indianapolis. And there was always sign of a running. We'd take a poll with everyone that I worked with and the other stations. And we'd always say, if you could, if you could only interview and deal with one sports athletes, what would it be? And at the top of the list was always hockey. And at the bottom of the list was always baseball. <laughs> And we never could figure out why. And we were like, is it because most most hockey guys are Canadian? But no, a lot of the guys that we know that are playing in the AHL, they're, you know, they're from all over. And so we never I never put that together until just now. Glenn. Maybe it is the, the juniors experience. And and again, there's something about that sport and and the, the people who played and played at a high level that that is really special. Do you have any idea, Dave? I, I feel like in Canada, obviously, it's, it's a religion. Hockey is a religion in Canada. There is a huge following and people love it in the U.S., but it's not the same. Do, do you have any kind of insight as to why you think that is? Um, you know, I think, well, I, I loved all sports when I was a kid, but hockey, you know, overshot everything. Um, but it's really what's, when you walk out the front door, what do you see? Is there a baseball field down the street? Is there a football stadium? Is there a play, place to play uh, flag football, baseball, you know, um, whatever's available, basketball courts. I mean, I, I live two blocks from a basketball. I see people shoot bas- baskets all the time. It's fun to do. Playing hockey's harder. In San Jose, for example, um, they're building two more rinks. When it's successful, people will do it. It is an expensive sport, too, which doesn't help. But it's very localized. Like Los Angeles is putting out players that are going to play in the NHL and already are. It's amazing. Dallas is. Uh, Adam, Adam and I uh, were in Houston for you know six, seven years. We used to have to go to Dallas because Dallas had fi- 15 sheets of ice and Houston had two. So Dallas hockey has taken off. So it's a little bit regionalized, but it's slowly getting better and bigger. And there, and uh, you know, 15 years ago, there were teams all over, professional teams all over the U.S. Um, I think Dallas or I think Texas had 15 professional hockey teams in the state of Texas at one point. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of amazing. But so that kind of you know. Stars it, but I, I really think it is getting a little bit more popular, and it's still very regionalized, though. Hmm. Well, Dave, let's uh, let's pivot here and tell us about. There you go, perfect timing. How we're gonna we're going to uh, talk a little bit about an interesting wine. There you go, thank you, Ash. An interesting wine tonight because Petit Verdot is not something we deal with. I'm going to let Glenn get into that in a little bit here, but just tell us how you discovered 
you know, how you went from Labatt's Blue to Petit Trudeau. Uh, I think it's a natural progress. You know, I, I, I think, I'm just kind of speaking for myself, but as I got older, you kind of go, okay, I've had two beers. I mean, I don't want to have another three or four beers. Let's order a bottle of wine. So, you know, you ordered, uh, we've all done it. You've ordered a bottle of wine, have no idea what you're ordering, no clue, what's, what should I order, you know, type of thing. And then you get your, once you're, once you realize, I'm just speaking for myself again here, once you realize what you like, you're trying to figure out, okay, what is it that I like? I know the taste of what I like, but what is it? And, you know, so you get a little bit more refined. And I, re- I remember I was in Kansas City. I was coaching for Houston. I was with Matt Shaw. Uh, Adam would know him. And we went to a restaurant, a steakhouse in Kansas City. I think it was a nice one. I can't remember the name of it, but it was. And we ordered some Chateau Montalena. Uh, and this would have been right around 2000. And it was a 1990 Chateau Montalena. And it was expensive. And we didn't make that much. But I'll tell you, we had a second bottle at our table right away. It was absolutely fantastic. And I, I as I was coming towards this show, I got, I'm thinking, I got to think of some wine stories because. I don't know how much of a wine expert I am, but I appreciate wine very much so. Um, and that was a little bit. But I think as I got older, I really appreciated, you know, pairing the wine with with uh, with the food you're having that night. And I, I think once the kids got out of the house and you're in the – I'm in the kitchen helping out more, I think that even that leads more to it. <laughs> Chateau Montalena, Glenn? Well – that's got to be in the. It has to be in the park. It always Come is. I, I had I had a couple of cases of the ninety, and I think I still have four, maybe six bottles left of the ninety in my cellar. Uh, <laughs> love that wine. It's better than ever. It's it's aged incredibly well. Great pick on your part because that's your aha wine. That's the one you had. Yeah. Oh my gosh, there's something to the, the. We all have wines. We go. There's something to this wine thing, but then you have one yes. that goes. Okay, I need a lot more of that, whatever it is, and I wanted a. I, I need a it. <laughs> yeah, it's like your first kiss with a gorgeous girl. You're like, I need a lot more of that, whatever that is. <laughs> All right, well, well, we're gonna we're gonna taste this Heichel Petit Verdot and have Glenn really dive into a little bit to what Petit Verdot is and how it differs from other wines, but first. Adam Gordon, yes, the brainchild of all of this, our mastermind. Adam had a chance to speak with the winemaker, Eric Heichel. So let's take a listen. Thanks, guys. And what an honor for me. I'm here with the winemaker from Heichel Family Cellars, Eric Heichel. And thank you for joining us. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the wine that everybody will be drinking tonight on the podcast. It's the 2016 Petit Verdot. Uh, tell me a little bit about this wine. What, what, what are some of the characteristics that these guys, what will they be getting on their palates tonight? Well, Petit Verdot, what I like is it's darker, richer than maybe in, uh, everyone's used to their cabs of Napa. And that's what's kind of drawn us to maybe doing something a little outside of the box. Um, but you're going to be getting more of the darker fruits, aromas, blackberries, blueberries, maybe some sage. You get a little bit of herbalness, maybe some floral, lavender. Um, and then on the palate, the wine's a pretty good balance of rich fruit and tannins together. Um, Petit Verdot can be pretty tannic wine, so 
part of the way we get around that is we barrel age our 36 months, maybe longer than the 24, just to help get that microoxidation and help it mellow it out a little bit. As far as food pairings, um, I would assume this goes with anything, but what would you recommend that would really bring out the, uh, the flavor of this wine? You know, a nice ribeye grilled and then just start throwing on some maybe portobello mushrooms. And I always make some mashed potatoes, but I grill the potatoes there on the grill too. And then just kind of end with garlic and mash them up there. Maybe throw some jalapenos on there to throw in there and kind of sample as you're going. I mean, I just, you know, pick away at the grill as you're, you're cooking and while you're sampling. Well, and obviously, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm in the Seattle area, so lots of seafood. Normally, when you have seafood, you want something lighter, like a Pinot, perhaps, obviously a, a white wine. How would you feel like your Petit Verdot would do with seafood? I would probably Especially try salmon. your salmon. That's what I was going to say. I would try it because that's yeah. a little bit fattier, just got, I don't know. Yeah, a lot stronger flavor profile even for the, the fish. So coming off that, Dave, first of all, I have to ask you, because as you said, you spent so much time around Adam Gordon in the minor leagues. And so the obvious question that we always ask people about that is, you know, all that time around Adam, what is it to this day that impressed you about Adam the least? <laughs> wow. That's a long list. <laughs> it's my favorite question that's ever been asked on this podcast, by the way. Oh, goodness. Uh, I'll tell you what. He is a great friend. Um I would trust him with anything, you know, I, I'm going the opposite way here, but uh, he is a real, he's a great, he's a wonderful guy. And I think that's why we all enjoy him. You guys all enjoy being around him because he cares. He cares about people. He, uh, he's, a, he's a wonderful person. So we're all blessed to have him as our friends, even though we publicly, although this might be a public state, uh, public way of saying I do like him as a friend, but he's a wonderful guy. See, I was so hoping to go the other way so I can oh. say that's cool. Most. <laughs> I love Adam. It's what I for years. No, I was going to say, you much for you know, this podcast is supposed to be getting authentic, real feelings. So let me leave the room and then ask the question again. You know, we, we don't want none of this BS on this podcast. That's the whole point of it. So let me just step out and then re ask. I think we should do that. Yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. The feeling, the feeling is very mutual, though. Adam, as the great Don Rickle said, we kid because we Amen love to that. You know, Here's to you, Adam. We've been go. trying. I, I, I will Please say, try. since we first launched this thing, and this has been Adam's baby and brainchild, we're just along for the ride. I've said, Adam, you have to be on the podcast. And he's like, I got too much stuff going on. I'm recording eight things, da, da, da. So thank you for finally giving in. It only took getting your best friend on the show to, to come on and show your face. But we appreciate that. Just remember who runs the edit machine and can edit this out. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. All right. So, so, so. So Glenn and Dave, Glenn is our, is Glenn spent so much time in the Mondavi world and is so very strong. He's got a great palate. So I'm going to let Glenn take over here. And Glenn, first of all, for anybody that may not be familiar, because I'm slightly familiar, but not an expert on Petit Verdot. What is Petit Verdot? Thank you, Chad. You know, the thing about Petit Verdot is you're right. Many people don't really know about it. They see it maybe listed on the back of a bottle of a Bordeaux blend or a California marriage. Um, what Petit Verdot is always used as, it's the backbone. Huge tannins, always bring the spice, you know, a little bit of spice and some black fruit. So Petit Verdot is a blending grape in Bordeaux. 
you rarely see it on its own. It's, it's just a, a rarity. And it's generally a new world type of thing. I love the fact Heichel's doing this. Um, they be, and what you see is because it's a, it, 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 because it's very thick skinned grape. It's, and it's, it also it, it, it ripens very late in the season. You get gigantic alcoholic bombs. So this is a 15% alcohol wine. Um, this is not a food pairing wine unless you're eating a bloody steak, unless you're eating a big roast. It, it'd be incredible with a cigar. It'd be incredible with something like that. Um, that being said, it's really well-rounded wine. It doesn't, it, 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 it has the tannins, which is what Petit Verdot is all about. It has the black fruit, it has the spice, but it also has a bit of fruit on it. So what whoever, the, the winemaker, whatever he was doing and how he did it was meant to maximize the heart of Petit Verdot. But I still think it could work. I, I think that I would still love it if it had just something to make it a little more flush, a little more rounded. So, Glenn, that was a great point, because normally, when, like, for example, we did the Bordeaux episode with Ralph Sands, and you'll look at a nice Bordeaux, and you look at the label, it's 6% Petit Verdot, right? 8% Petit Verdot. And it's just a little, as you said, it's a mix in with the other grapes that are making the Bordeaux. So is this something, I mean, is this a, a specialty uh, is Petit Verdot something that appeals to a very special palate to sell on its own? I think it. I think what it is, it, it, it appeals to someone who's experimental, someone who wants to go out and try something that they they know. Um, and I think that can that can work for and against the winery. It can work with uh, mature wine drinkers that know what Petit Verdot is and go, well, I, let's see what they're doing with this grape. It can also help with the the wine drinkers that that are novices and they go, I've never heard of it. Let's try it. And they might love it. Um, as I yeah. said, I think it's a really good wine on its own merits. I think it's, it's got incredible structure and the tannins. It's a, it's what you might call a, um, it's a, it's a got a lot of alcohol, but it's not a hot wine, meaning like some alcohol, high alcohol wines, almost you can, you can taste and feel that alcohol. This one's got enough of the, tannins and the backbone and the spice and the fruit to, you don't really notice it as much that being said i'm still probably gonna have a cigar or a big giant steak now tomorrow's menu here at our boathouse is steak so this is if there's any left is going to that because um i think you're right ted it, it's 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 i think most people are gonna look at it and don't know well what is it other than the experienced wine drinker and they're going to think, well, I got to try this. I, I would try it. I saw a Petit Verdot on its own. Holy cow, I'm going to give it a shot. I was just going to say, Glenn, I'm, I, we're obviously doing things differently if you're going to have leftover wine tomorrow. I don't know that I've ever had any leftover wine from any podcast I've done with you. Uh, the thing that blows my mind about this particular wine, and I, I think it's absolutely fantastic and delicious, is that like usually I try and do a little bit of research. I'll look up the the winemaker or what, you know, Adam takes care of a lot of the back end information, but I went on Google, like you cannot find, it's like a secret society. Like Heichel family wines does not exist on the internet. And I, I think Adam, he, he mentioned to you, Eric Heichel did that they keep a low profile on purpose, they do small batch wines. And then, you know, he said, email me if you, if you want to buy it. So we can throw up that email address, but I, 
what, like what I'm just confused as to a, how you guys kind of got linked in with Heiko family wines and B sort of the backstory as to why you'd be making such delicious wine and keep such a low profile. Uh, I, I, I was, uh, <clears throat> I was coming to San Jose on a road trip coaching an NHL team and we had a day off. So instantly your my feelers went out to Napa. Okay. Who do we know in Napa? Who would know somebody in Napa? We can get into a couple wineries. And so I phoned a friend. He sent me out with uh, Bert George, who owns a, a wine store in Willow Glen. And Bert was wonderful, took care of me and a fellow a colleague of mine that was going with me, sent us to two wineries. One was Laird, and that's where Eric Heichel worked. And I became kind of got to know him there. And then another one was Minor Winery. And Minor, he's from, he's a Michigan guy, he's a big hockey fan. So that's why we got set up there. So anyway, so Eric and I became friends. And uh, he's a, he's a, maybe 35 years old, loves to play hockey, drives around an hour, hour and a half to go to get to a hockey rink to play. Just a wonderful guy. And he, he really wants to keep it low key. Um, you know, he sell he sells out all the time and he, and he doesn't want to get too much bigger. So I think maybe that's a little bit, he makes Syrah as well. Um, so that's, you know, that's his other one that, that that's the two he makes that I've had anyways, is the Petit Verdot and the Syrah. So anyways, he, he just wants to keep it kind of low and smaller and, you know, so just keep it simpler for him, I guess. Sounds like a hockey guy to me, anyway. <laughs> yeah, and I would guess it's a small. I mean, I would think it's a small production wine. I mean, it's not going to be in in the Napa world of cab, right? The Perdue of the same blend is not going to be a big market seller. No, but it's it's always it, it, if we've learned anything over well, if you have a history in wine at all, Ridge Ridge in in down in south of San Francisco. They made a living off of wines that people didn't know about and yet became absolute fantastic examples of great wines. And so I think Heichel is figuring out that same thing. When you're in Napa, anybody can find great cab grapes. You can find great grapes. But what do you do with those grapes? And Ridge Ridge did that 50 years ago. And now can you do that with Petit Verdot. Can you do it with, you know, a lot of people are making good Shiraz, but can you make great wines off that mainstream grid and have the, the rest of the world come calling as well as the people that know their wines? Hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's a great call on Ridge, by the way, because some one of these apps, when we uh, we crank in the fall, we'll do a little Zinfandel. Oh, on. That'll be a, that'll be a I'm good all one. in. Hey, yeah. Uh, Hey, hey, I'm, hey, I'm in too if I can come back. You're <laughs> always welcome, Dave Barr. So, 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 so I think, Dave, if, if we can continue sipping on the Petit Verdot, can I ask you another hockey question? Sure. So we're watching the Stanley Cup playoffs. And admittedly, I'm in, I'm in New York. I, I love the Sharks because I live here. But I'm a New York. I grew up a New York Islanders fan. That's my team. So I'm watching them play Tampa Bay. And I'm just furious because – their goalie is as big as Glenn. Now, you haven't met Glenn in person, but Glenn was an NFL offensive lineman on great teams. All right? Glenn is a big man. That goalie for Tampa Bay is huge, like Glenn. How the hell do you score on this guy? Oh, yeah. I mean, 
the the goalies are getting bigger and bigger and bigger because now because it's a lot of it's because of equipment. Before they didn't go down, in other words, go down to their knees because their equipment wasn't very good. And so they get hit here or you know, even even their face masks forty years ago weren't weren't that good. So now they can go down. They can spread their legs out, so they're covering the whole bottom of the net because typically goalies are six two and taller. So they can cover everything low. So the only way to score on a goalie is to get it up. And it's not always easy to get a puck up. So that's just the natural way for it. And plus, uh, Vasilevsky, the, the goalie for Tampa, he's also very athletic. So that's- he goes one way, covers up one way, and the pass comes back over here. And he's quick enough to get back and have a chance at stopping that puck as well. So that's the only way really you can score on goalies now is you have to go up top above the shoulders, or you make them go side to side. So if they're over here looking at this, you make a pass over this way over here, and you might have a bit more of a chance so that, you know, getting across center ice. So uh, he's an amazing goalie. They have an incredible team. They, you know, I thought they were the best team in the NHL before the playoffs started. Uh, and it was just a matter of how things were going to play its way out. Dave Barr just described a soccer goalie as well. Because of the nature of <laughs> they're all six five, six seven, they're all the biggest huge soccer fans. And, and trying to cover and I'm not particularly a soccer fan, but I'm a sports fan and I've had three daughters or well, two daughters play college soccer. It's soccer goalies have to be tall, they have to be able to move, and they have to be able to cover the ground and hope that a ball goes high. Hope that someone is in a great shot yeah. in the upper corner. You're absolutely right. I mean that's that's it's 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 amazing that it's I think it's somewhat amazing that it's taking this long hockey to catch up to that very thing. I agree. I mean, like there's five nine goalies like twenty years ago. It's like how can a five nine goalie play? So they have to be pretty special. But I mean, it really is lending itself to bigger goalies now. Okay, so other than bigger goalies and that they love wine, like what's been, from your perspective, the biggest sort of difference as you look at the evolution of, of the game and, and the players and, and the culture around hockey since when you started playing? Oh, wow. There's a question. Um, it's it's a different game for sure. The, the physicality of the game is not leaving at all. They're still hitting, but you have to be careful about how you hit. And this all goes back to minor hockey, not to get too deep into this, but this goes back to minor hockey when minor hockey meaning five, six, seven, eight-year-olds, kids getting hurt because they get hit from behind. So they're, they're, they're facing the boards and somebody hits them from behind, they go facing the boards, you can, you can really get hurt. So they tried to figure out ways of stopping that. So they said, well, no hitting from behind. So what do kids do now? They face the boards because they know they're not going to get hit from behind. So they'll literally on purpose face the boards, but they occasionally get hit from behind. So, I mean, it's kind of a, a, a tough thing because kids growing up now are used to facing the boards. That's their safety. They can't get hit if they're facing the boards, but yet they do get hit every once in a while. So that's one of the biggest things is the, the physicality and, and and there's a lot of hitting still. Fighting is almost out of the game. I hope it doesn't leave the game. I really, I really don't. Because um, to the novice hockey fan, 
The reason why there is fighting is because we have a weapon in our hand. Everybody can kind of use this weapon roughly the same. So if, if there's fighting and, you know, what happens is, is, is it used to be that you had to stand up for yourself. It's changed a bit. So if you slash a guy and a guy comes up to you and say, let's go, that's kind of the moniker for let's fight. It's let's go. Now you don't have to really fight anymore because you don't really have to answer to your slash on the leg or your cross check. So that's kind of changed a little bit too. Uh, and I hope they still keep fighting in to, to some degree because it kind of mellows out some of the real dirty stuff, some of the stuff that could be very dirty that players will use. So um, that's, in a nutshell, real quickly, what I think some of the big differences are. Who is the best fighter that you saw? Oh, sorry, Glenn. I'm just, I just want to hear, like, give me, I, 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 when I was in Syracuse, John Morasti was, was on the crunch. So like, I sort of knew oh. about, I, I, I was like, wow, there's a position. There's like literally a guy on the roster that is getting paid because he is a fighter. Like that seemed awesome to me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I played for Detroit for five years. We had such a tough team. It was so fun to play. Uh, for Detroit because we had Bob Probert, Joey Kosher, uh, and then we had, so that's our top guys. They're up here. And then we had like five other guys in my category, and I fought a little bit. Um, five other guys in my category in our team. So, you know, you didn't have to fight all that much. But uh, I would say Joey Kosher, I'll, I'll talk about those two guys. Joey Kosher. I would be scared to fight against because he's trying to break your face when he gets in a fight with you. <laughs> he's trying to like absolutely knock your face, like knock your head off where Bob Probert will hit you five times. And believe me, Bob Probert's no fun to fight against either, but I would be kind of a toss up. Either Bob's going to hit you like 12 times or Joey's going to hit you twice. It's like, it's no fun either way. But, uh, <laughs> uh, those are, I mean, there's a lot of tough guys that I haven't yeah. mentioned, but those are two of the tough guys that made Steve Eiserman's life a lot easier. Um, you know, so he could play, he could play the way he needed to most of the time. And if something happened, one of those guys would would help him out. You know, Dave, and that's and that's the uh, Glenn. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Glenn. You know, I, I, you, you brought up so many good points there, but like back in the day when all the ice was different. And you have the small arenas, and then the big eyes. I think the Buffalo. Yeah, Buffalo. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the, the old odd was an incredible place to watch a game. But you had those small arenas, the big eyes, and people were using that neutral zone trap. You had to have that fighter to let your skater skate. You had to have it, and the fighter oh, yeah. knew their role, and they were great at it. They were always the nicest guys in the world off the ice, which was amazing. But they knew their role, and and and. When, when you look at – that's what I miss about hockey was when all the ice was different, no matter where you went, other than the – you know, when you went out west, yeah, they were all big ices. But everybody had a different ice rink, kind of like baseball. Every park was is different. You know, you had to, you had to figure out the way that it was going to go by the park you were in. I miss that part of hockey, and I think that's a kind of – I'm kind of addressing what you said, I think. Yeah. You, you know what? You know what's a great point by you because – Buffalo, Boston, Chicago, who are the other small rinks? 
Um, you go into there like Chicago Stadium was amazing. Uh, uh, the you so you have to go to a Chicago Blackhawk game, especially when they're playing a rival, just to hear the national anthem. Glenn, have you ever heard the national anthem there in lot or in person? Never live, no. You gotta go. You gotta go. It is goosebumps. I told uh, I told one of our uh, two years ago we were in in Chicago, and I said to one of our extra guys, I said, "Hey, you're coming up for the national anthem." And he goes, "No, why would I do that?" Because he's in the back in in the locker room area. I said, "Get up here. You have to listen to the national anthem." It is um, absolutely. Ashley, do you know about the national? So what anthem I was going to say is that that I've been to one game in in Chicago, and it was when it was in the playoffs. It was when they were playing, I think, Vancouver in the 2011 playoffs, and. Wow! I That's it was it was one of the most unbelievable moments that I have ever experienced in sports. And again, I'm I didn't grow up a crazy hockey fan. I grew up in Denver, went to Boston College. My freshman year, like we won the national championship in hockey, and that was kind of what opened my eyes to the sport. And then living out east, I kind of got more in tune with it. But when I went to that game, it I feel the same way, Dave. Like you have to experience that, whether you've ever watched a second of hockey in your life. Like it was, oh, it's, it was so special. It is goosebumps. Yeah. It's goosebumps. Yeah. Uh, so those ranks are, and it's funny how you mentioned baseball because when you're talking about, it, I was thinking baseball right away. How they have, you know, a short right right field line, and and the, you know certain areas, and it's a little bit different. They get different bounces, and but hockey. I don't know. I guess he can't really do that, right? We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna make a one eighty five by eighty five rink. I mean, kind of fun, but well, it used to be that way. There were short ice, big ice. You know, out west, the ice. I remember yeah. when, uh, when it was Vancouver and um, I want to say Calgary were just killing it. They had gigantic ice compared to everybody else, um, and skaters were skating <laughs> all over the place. It was like, and they were scoring crazy. It was like. Holy cow, you know, but the minute they got on the small ice, they had some issues, you know, it was different size arenas. And yeah. I love that. <laughs> Just it's bit, awesome. Yeah, well, physicality, how, how do you build your team? You know, how do you build your team? Yeah. Yeah. What, Dave, would you say if they, because I know this has been discussed through the years about the NHL adopting the international size sheet, which the Olympics obviously use. Now, I, I, it's likely unrealistic because arenas are not going to give up seats, uh, you know, to enlarge the ice sheet. But for the would it be a better game is what I'm – in your opinion, if if everybody played in the bigger sheet? No, because I, – I, you know what? I, I'm going to go back to Ashley's question way back – or five minutes ago. I think the biggest difference in hockey is coaching. I mean, when I played in the 80s and early 90s, and then now we coach everything. So to get to your point, uh, Ted, we would have the middle of the ice shut down. So the uh, co- as a coach speaking here, so the outside of the ice would be available, but it, it wouldn't make it more exciting. It would not make it more exciting. It wouldn't be, you know, you'd enter the other team's end. It might be a little bit of different entry into the other team's end, but you'd be on the outside. And we would coach the hell out of defending the middle of the ice, which we already do. So you would just leave the other team with more room on the outside. So I, I think, if anything, it would, it would be a worse game. It would be a slower game because there would be more puck control on the outside, but nothing going, not as much going through the middle because of 
essentially you're almost forced. You have to eventually go in the middle of the ice. Right. I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah. And, and get a little inside hockey here because you grew up playing Dave a style. I'm assuming I grew up announcing it as a young guy in the minors. You get to center ice, dump the puck in. Wingers go chase it. Go, <laughs> you know, <laughs> dump and chase. It was called dump and chase hockey. And now to Glenn's point, I'm watching hockey in the last 20 years, and it's like watching soccer now. It's all about possession, possess yeah. Yeah. the puck. Yeah. And, you're, you're trying to. You're trying to keep, yeah. like as a coach, your perfect world is you've got possession of the puck going through the neutral zone and crossing the offensive blue line. It's hard to do. Like his teams are coaching against that, so you know there's there's diff, different formulas. Um, what, talking about Tampa, Braden Point, one of the best players in the playoff. If and he wasn't MVP, but he very well could have been MVP. I cannot remember how many times I saw him carrying the puck, very skilled player, through the neutral zone, getting the blue line and dumping it in for him to go get it. And that's because I think he recognized – I don't think the coaches are really coaching him on that. I think he recognized that that was the best way for me to actually be safe with it, gain a little bit of zone area. So, um, I, I, I mean, it's, just, it's one of those things that ideally as a coach you want to have possession entering it. Like on a power play, coaching the power play, you want to have possession entering the zone. But – not always that easy. The other teams coaching against that stuff. And I would think that, that for me, besides taking the physicality out of the game, which I love, but also when you go to bigger ice and the old dump and chase allowed more exciting exchanges in front of the net because of when you're only possessing it outside all the time, you slow the game down, you work for possession, and it's, it's very much more like soccer at that point. You're looking to change the field from one side to the other to get a shot on rather than that old dump it in, get behind the net, kick it out, and get a, get a shot in, which made it exciting. That, to me, was I, – I, I still watch hockey. I still enjoy it, but I miss that old excitement of anything can happen, any possession, right down in the ice because it's going to be set up the same way. Yeah, yeah, you know what? You're right. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking about. I'm, you know, I'm watching the playoffs, and I watch as a coach a lot. I watch, I enjoy it, but I watch as a coach, and that puck being dumped in there. You look when when those pucks are getting dumped in. It's kind of a fifty fifty situation. Like, is the other team going to get out? Yeah. You know, because they get back first or almost first. Um, we're getting real technical here. Wow. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I as a coach, I love this, but. You get into that technical part, but when you get the puck in the other team's end, you at least, or I shouldn't say at least, but you probably have a 50-50 chance of getting it back even though they get to it first because they're trying to go through you. I just got to say, Dave, I, I'm loving this conversation, and I know that we are almost at, at the end of our time, and you've just been awesome, and I've learned a lot. I, I got to ask you one more wine question, though, before we go, because I, I always joke that I'm kind of like the, the most novice and the least knowledgeable wine drinker on this podcast. So I find myself sort of laughing about the way that wine is described sometimes. And Glenn's actually the only person that's ever described wine in a way that I actually understand it. But for you, and I guess for any of you, like what's the most ridiculous word you've heard people use to describe wine? <laughs> 
I'll, I'll go first. Uh, I'll say like forest floor. I'll, and I'll tell you, it didn't come for me. It didn't come now. for me. Oh, oh my God. There's um, a lot out there. I don't know if I, I don't even know if I get, do I get intimidated when somebody says, oh, that wine is so nose friendly or whatever the hell. They, I don't even know what they say. I don't know. I have no idea. I think I get intimidated because somebody says something that they're going, God, everybody knows more about wine than me. Everybody does. God. Well, here's the real question, but, David. Oh. The mouth feel different when you have fake teeth. <laughs> I'm just, I'm assuming that your teeth are real. I don't know, but they're gorgeous and you're a, a longtime hockey player. So I don't, I don't want to take any. No, reason. they're fake. You know what? I, I, I'll tell the story real quickly. I'm playing for Detroit. Puck hits a stick just in front of me, comes straight up right into my mouth. And I wear a mouth guard, which kind of stops your teeth from being chipped more than anything. So I go down. And Glenn, you know, you'd be proud of me. <laughs> up, straight to the bench. Well, this is getting a little gross here, but I pull my mouth guard out, and it's like I have six teeth in an ice tray. <laughs> They're just sitting there, the whole root and everything. I'm looking at it going, what the hell? Roots and all are in the ice tray. Well, nobody was taking a sip of wine out there while they were. I was describing this. So they, I go back in the in the dress room and they put them all back in. I put get braces put on. I played the rest of the season with braces on, trying to get those six teeth to. No, Dave, no. I love you. That's the, that's the best story. Dave, sorry, I'm sorry if it was. <laughs> I, Dave, you, you were probably. Uh, I'm proud because you you didn't get carried off the ice. Never get carried. No, never, never. No, yes. <laughs> Dave, you were probably on the bench. A couple of years ago, I was at a game in San Jose. Same thing you described happened, Joe Pavelski. And he moved like that, is gone. And the next whistle, they come out and scrape and they find the tooth. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? They found the tooth. They took it in and the dentist, the great dentist work, of course, you can get, they got the tooth back in. Yeah. I heard that story as it was happening. I couldn't oh, it's, it. it's something, it's hard to go through your uh, hockey career without losing some teeth. You know, you have the, I never in my whole life, I never wore anything in my face. Never wore a shield when I was seven years old. Nothing. It was just open face here. Just the way timing wise, I guess more than anything. But it's almost impossible not to lose teeth. I got lots of stitches all over the face and that's just part of the game. Well, I'm assuming <laughs> gonna teeth, happen. you don't get the wine stains that you do on, you know, like that, well, you that know may do, be my wine taking off in the NHL too. You, you, know, you know what you do? You yeah. just swap it out every year or two. You just go like, this is a little stain. <laughs> Pull it out, throw it away, get some new stuff really? put up in there. That, that's the wrong reason the to the, the first question that I asked. Yes. My wine's taking off. It's a around it at all. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so Dave, i I've heard, obviously, I knew you. I knew of you. By the way, did you ever stand in front of Billy Smith when Billy oh, Smith was a goalie? Oh, dear God. He was scary. I mean, I'm saying, did your, he didn't break your ankles? No, he did a few times, yes. Exactly. He, did. he was a goalie that played for the Islanders. That was. You had to be careful going behind the net against him because he'd fling his stick out in the far side of the net. So, so I'm going to say that I, I, I we, we have extended this to its limit. So I want to thank everybody so much. Well, we'll make a very quick word that 
we're going to follow the lead of the world here. Much of the world takes August off, right? So we're going to do the same thing. We're going to have a little hiatus in August. And we'll be back right about, I think, August 30 is what we're targeting to come back and do our next step. So we're not going away. We're just taking a little August hiatus. So to take us into hiatus, I want to thank David Angus Barr for being with us. How about that? There you go. That's my Scottish heritage right there. (laughs) Angus Robertson is my grandfather. Thank you. Cheers to everybody. And I want to say one last thing as we say goodbye. The most important thing that we have omitted from tonight, Dave Angus Barr. Congratulations on becoming a grandfather last week. Thank you very much. Thank you. What a wonderful, yeah, that's, that's amazing. It's it's the best. Really neat. To I talk. have heard, and, and Ted, maybe you can attest to this. I've heard that becoming a grandparent is like way better than becoming a parent because it's all the good parts about parenting oh. and none of the shitty parts. It's just what I've heard. It's good cop. You're the good cop now, Dave. So can do no wrong. Thanks for joining us this week on Outside the Vines. Remember to check out our YouTube channel to get more out of your experience with the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back on our next episode soon. This has been a presentation of Outside the Vines. For the love of wine and the thirst for sports.